Hello and welcome to the Hive Radio Storytellers podcast. Each month we select a theme and our group create and record fictional pieces for your listening pleasure. I'm Diane Gray and I will be taking you through our stories for this podcast. For the theme this month we have another look at the subject of local history as we have so much heritage in the North East. We are also joined by Adam Bell to tell us about the latest exhibition at South Shields Museum called Pushing the Boat Out. But we'll start off with our first piece created by Anne Ridley. It is her local history story with a twist. The Mucky Angel When you can stay in only one direction, and that's northeast, it's handy to have a pigeon for a pal. Derek's my pal. He gives me daily bulletins of above, below and behind. Long ago, I could dart to my peripheral vision. On my left, the excited queues outside the Haymarket Cinema, stretching up the back lane. On my right, the glorious tower of St Thomas's Church and the congregation greeting each other in their Sunday best. Below were star-crossed lovers, waiting for their dates, trying to appear nonchalant as time passed. 7pm, 7.15, I was unveiled on the 22nd of June, 1908, by a Lieutenant General from the war whose soldiers I commemorate. Their names all 370 of them from Northumbrian regiments are engraved on my column. They died fighting in South Africa between 1899 to 1902. A war which didn't concern them and which few may have understood. Well, that's just my opinion. The unveiling was triumphant. Men wore trilby hats, women wore ankle-length skirts and carried parasols in the June sunshine. Decades on, city folk called me the Mucky Angel. It was the soot from their homes garnering that insult. I'm not even an angel. I am Nike, Greek goddess of victory and speed. Get it? It's not rocket science to grasp the inspiration behind Nike running shoes. Derek arrived with shock news sometime in the 1970s. An underground railway was planned. Tunnelling was to begin beneath me. My Greek brain screamed flight, but my sandaled feet were bound fast to the obelisk. One Tuesday morning, Derek squawked. They're coming! A wingless metal monster snarled above. Humans descended, attaching chains to every part of me. I heard chiselling below my feet and then, whoosh, I dangled above those pointing, laughing Geordies. Oh, the ignominy. Derek flew past my laurel crown. Fear not, I'll keep in touch. And he did, via Bernardo, the mouse, who visited nightly during those dark, terrifying years. I felt entombed, like Aida and her lover, only I had no one to hold me tenderly. Then, 
they're coming, they're coming, squeaked Bernardo, as light flooded into my concrete prison. I was wheeled out and recognised my obelisk, 68 feet tall. Again, the wingless monster lifted me aloft. I swung into the clear Newcastle air, no coal fires now. But my joy turned to horror when I saw a huge glass dome filling the space that was once behind me. Officers to let, it announced. And below, the metro station. The cinema has gone. The congregation has diminished. People without homes crouch on my steps. Ankle-length skirts have climbed to thighs. People stare at hand-held rectangles. Trains rumble below. Derek still patrols. His bowels are unsound. He saves his splats for those who never look up, forever glued to their glass rectangles. My stone wings are now fibreglass, lighter. Maybe I'll do a runner one day. Hey, you down there, want to swap your Nike trainers for a pair of Greek sandals? Angel was written and narrated by Anne Ridley, who also played Derek the Pigeon and Bernardo the Mouse. Sound effects by Mike Ridley. I'm now joined by Adam Bell to talk a little bit about a new exhibition that's going to be on in South Shields Museum and Art Gallery. Hello, Adam. Hello. Well, it's nice to be here again, chatting Thank about you. my work. It's good to have you back. And I wonder, could you just tell us a little bit about this particular exhibition that starts? Well, uh, it's called Pushing the Boat Out, and it's all about shipbuilding and ship repair in South Tyneside over the years. So uh, we, we go back as far as um, uh, wooden shipbuilding right. and uh, the, you know, the, the days of sailing ships. Uh, and uh, with uh, South Shields being at the, the mouth of the river, there was a, quite a concentration of uh, shipbuilding uh, in and around South Shields. But the exhibition uh, also very much looks at Jarrow and Hebron as well. Right. Because a lot of people, you know, they, they think about uh, shipbuilding and you'll have uh, Hawthorne Leslie's in Hebron. Mm-hmm. And uh, before the 1930s, of course, there was Palmer's in Jarrow. Um, so the, the, all along the river, a great tradition of shipbuilding and ship repair because something that people often don't think about is is ship repair Mm -hmm. but ship repair was really important to the town and particularly in and around that first part of the town the the mouth of the town both on the north and the south side so what sort of things have you collected for the exhibition well uh there's certainly plenty to see um, I've really crammed in some wonderful artefacts. Uh, as you'd imagine, in an exhibition about shipbuilding and ship repair, mm. we've got lots of nice models. And these models are real works of art. I mean, you look at them and you look at the fine detail and you think, gosh, how long would it have taken to make something like that? These people were real craftspeople. 
Um, so the models themselves, as I say, they're just works of art. But then we've got lots of other things as well. We've got wonderful artworks from local artists. A lot of people would know of the uh, South Shields artist Bob Ollie. And uh, Bob, actually, uh, he's a great supporter of the museum. And he's painted a special new series of paintings, which are on display for the first time in this exhibition. And they're all about uh, shipyard trades. Um, So we're displaying those. And uh, we've got lots of old photographs and memorabilia, tools of the trade. So uh, I've enjoyed putting it together. And I think people are going to really enjoy coming and seeing the exhibition. Is there um, a mix of memories from people that you've got? Yeah, well, one of the big things about the exhibition was I was interviewing people uh, to gather their memories. In fact, I actually interviewed about 70 people. So we've got loads of memories and there's a part of the exhibition where you can put on headphones and uh, you can actually hear some excerpts from those uh, oral history recordings. And I think we might manage to get a couple of those clips into this podcast. Yeah, that would be great. Um, One thing that uh, also I found very interesting was you think about shipbuilding and you think it's a very male environment. But there were women who worked in the industry. And actually a few of the uh, recordings that I did were were with women. Um, So I think you're going to be able to maybe feature some of those as well. Certainly we'll we'll certainly put as much as we can into it. And thank you for letting us have those uh, recordings to listen to. Was there any particular story that you heard that really surprised you? Well, there was one chap, I remember, he actually said that he lived in the dock. And I did a bit of a double take and I said, Mm -hmm. sorry, you lived there? This was at uh, Middle Docks. Right. And um, there was, apparently there was a house right, right at the head of number four dock, which was the big dock. And uh, on the ground floor, it was like a sort of like a bait cabin and you had like sort of maybe a generator or something. But on the first floor was an actual house. And his dad, <laughs> his dad worked in the, in the, in, in the yard mm-hmm. and uh, the family were allowed to live in this house. Um, so I said, well, what was that like actually living in the yard? Because that must have been weird. And he said, well, actually, um, he actually served his time uh, in Middle Docks. And he remembered one occasion where he was late for work. And his, his foreman kind of like was just couldn't believe it. He said, he said, how, how could you of all people be late for work when you bloody well live here? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't know that anybody lived in the docks. That's, it's, it's unexpected, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. But um, there's been so many, so many interesting stories shared as part of this project. And um, all of these oral history recordings will now uh, form part of the museum's archive, uh, which will be a great resource for uh, research for the future. Yeah, yeah. So have you come across sort of anything about the, the launching of ships or anything unusual about the building of those ships? Well, I mean, uh, yes, a lot of people remember ship launches. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if you didn't work in the shipyards, uh, if you if you grew up in this local area, you usually would have been taken to see a ship launch. Um, some some people I spoke to actually said that they would get the day off school just, just to go and see the ship launches because this was great pride. That Local people had wonderful pride in what they were producing and uh, they, they loved to, to watch this amazing spectacle. The dignitary would swing the bottle and then, you know, as if by magic, the ship would slide gracefully down the ways. Of course, it wasn't actually magic. It was uh, lots of shipwrights uh, sort of uh, beavering about below, doing things, making it ready, uh, so that at just the right moment, the the ship would start to slide. Um, But actually, nowadays, when people build ships, a lot of shipbuilding happens uh, in the Far East. And uh, generally speaking, what happens today is that a ship would get built in in a dry dock. And then when it's ready, 
the dock just gets flooded. But I think that's a bit boring, you yeah. know. Um, I mean, uh, I would like, I, I would love to see a, a ship launch in the traditional sense, yeah. where where it slides down into the river. Yeah. I must admit, it's one of my memories. I moved up to the north from Essex, and worked on the riverside, so I was able to see one ship being launched, and it was just phenomenal to be there. And I would, uh, it is, it's a, it is a memory that you never ever forget. Well, one of the ladies that you might be hearing from is uh, Irene Hills. And Irene was the head tracer at uh, Hawthorne Leslie's in Hebron. And uh, it was Irene's job uh, to put the red, white and blue ribbons on the bottle of champagne, which would then be swung against the bow of the ship. Um, So every ship launch, that was her particular job. She was the one and the only one that was trusted with that special task. It's sad in a way that the river doesn't have those skills anymore. Uh, but things things change all the time. Nothing stays the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, one new focus for the river now is renewable energies. Yeah. And uh, here in South Shields, the former Redhead site, it's currently being uh, t- transformed into a, a sort of operations base for a, a vast new uh, offshore uh, wind farm. Um, so from from building ships to renewable energy, things mm-hmm. change all the time. Yeah. And also one thing that people say, sometimes people say the river the river's dead now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it sounds a bit sad to say that it's dead, but actually it's more alive than it ever was because it's certainly more clean. Yeah, there's all the things that are underneath it. You're right there in the water. But, uh, but then you see quite a lot of ships coming in and out of the tide nowadays. Well, you do, but not in any way compared to what it used to be. Um, people have told me how chock-a-block it used to be and apparently uh, there might have been ships uh, moored against the quayside and they would have been two or three abreast and then you would have had that on both sides of the river. Uh-huh. So some people have sort of jokingly said that you, you could almost cross the river by hopping from one ship to another. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. So when can people come along and see this? The exhibition opens on the 28th of May and uh, there's plenty of time to see it because it runs until November. Right. Okay. And if they need, do they need to book to come, or is it just open? No, no. It's just uh, free access and uh, turn up, and uh, I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Uh, certainly worth going to see. I'm looking forward to getting a chance to pop down and have a look at it as well. Great. Okay. Thank you so much for coming in. Adam. You're very welcome. As Adam mentioned, he has been collecting stories from shipyard workers, and you can listen to a number of them if you visit the museum. As a taster, we have some extracts for you. Did you know that ships can be extended in length and height? What we did, a lot of conversion work as well, you know, I started doing conversion work, cutting ships in half, them, you know, putting pieces in and making them longer. Um, and one of the best ones we did, actually, it's the first time I've ever done it, I actually made the ship four foot higher. Yeah. So what was the purpose of that? Yeah, she was a like a, a roll-on, roll-off ferry, you know. Um, she had what they call like portable car decks inside. And I didn't really know, but I, they were saying they, they wanted to actually make it higher so they could get, put, uh, they should get a lot of holidaymakers on going to the continent uh, for like some caravans and stuff like that, you know. So they came up with this idea that it actually make the ship four foot higher. That's in in old Geordie Shack, I say four would Um So what I actually did was um, you can imagine the likes of the DFDS ferries. I'd get a, that type of thing, um, and actually cut the ship 
the full length right away along um, more or less level with the dock side or just below um, <clears throat> and inside we've actually made them out of uh, you know sheet piles you know when they the pile drive uh, like dams and stuff like that you know uh, they built what they call jacking boxes out of them inside and uh, we put loads of jacks inside and they had form at the time Tommy Holesby a smashing guy uh, he was he took full control of the whole lot you know he's everybody I think everybody else was scared of it you know and uh, they cut the ship through and I think it was roughly 300 guys inside all at these jacking points uh, and the idea is what he did was uh, he used to blow a whistle and you'd all start jacking at the same time some of these jacks were you had like a pump and it was linked off to about four or five different pumps uh, but all these guys right the way through and you'd all start jacking and then obviously the idea was to the ship you still lift it would lift so far and then you'd put big steel pins in lock it off and then ease the jacks and then start again you know and uh, when it first started I was just jacking away and jacking away and nothing happened you know and I thought, oh. bearing in mind it was about 2,800 tonne we were lifting you know that we found out later and um, so it finally did start moving so that was it we, we carried on so it took yeah, it was two and a half days to lift it uh, and it was weird you, you walk along a dock side and you could see right through the ship to the other dock side but the, the best one was on, on the last day uh, let's say bearing in mind there's 300 guys inside and it was just like a big echo chamber so on the last day it was Tommy's birthday so would found out so we went around we told everybody we said when he blows his whistle don't don't start chatting sing happy birthday so he was standing there and uh he blew his whistle and you can imagine 300 blokes in this big echo chamber singing happy birthday you know so i just stood there and you could see him getting flustered at that and there was a, a guy from the gazette was there you know and he said to him he says, if there's someone to that verse, I would have burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Oh, it, was, it was really good, eh? Now that was George Crooks. I never realised that such major changes could be made to ships. We now have the reminiscences of a real old-timer to remind us of happenings in the area. Ah, reflecting on me time in this family. No surprises me anymore. It's like another world since me early days. <laughs> and I've seen it all before. I've witnessed, at least through Newcastle, the big changes going way back. I was taken to see them, giving me memories that most of yous will lack. <laughs> like Fennec first store opening, or that treat from out of the blue of going to see Hoppin's Fun Fair. Each started in 1882. Oh, there were that awful fire. Got in the Theatre Royal, near the turn of the century. And I watched as King Edward, in 1906, opened the Victoria Infirmary. Five years on, at Gosford's Road, Britain Race. Oh, I first saw him land an airplane. Then you know what happened. I don't want to remember from when those world wars came. I'd much rather recall when in 24, Newcastle won the FA Cup. 
No. Who scored our winner then? Or in the three fifties finals? I guess I'll have to look it up. <laughs> October 28th, and I saw King George V over the Tyne Bridge to such cheers. Mm. Shame the thirties and forties brought poverty and death. Again, I won't linger on our tears. Bless them. At least the fifties were quiet, till the young'uns in the family got into that damn rock and roll. Took me to Tommy Steele's debut at Sunderland Empire, which left me feeling so old. I must have stuck out like a sore thumb when they dragged me along to the animals' sixties shows. And what young Bobby saw in Led Zeppelin's first gig at the Mayfair, well, I don't know. I saw bits of Get Carter being filmed two years on, summer of 70, round our streets. And when six years later, Eldon Square shops opened, now that day out were a real treat. <laughs> There's one record I'd like sitting straight at this point. Aye, this was a time of some decline. One by one, shipyards closed. And then there's the sorrows of what happened to every pit mine. But see, too often we defined as a region bereft, longing still for that powerhouse past. I've lived long enough to know, like 1980s Metro, it's our spirit as an area that'll last. Tech or tourism's what we're best at now. That and races on land or sea, from the Great North Run, First in 1981, to the tall ships race I saw in 93. And ten years on, Queen Elizabeth come to another opening the crowds adored. At the Millennium Bridge, I thought you know what, Henny? <laughs> I've seen it all before. I could brag on to the present day about more that I've seen firsthand. Yet you'll be wondering, hang on. You've survived that long? Explain. I don't understand. <laughs> ah, better than that. See, no one ever asked me to potentially risk my life marching off to them wars or down a pit in a yard or had me joining in strikes. No. No one had outlast them. I watched it all from afar. In more comfort than some generations. So, to live long like me, to get the most of history, better hope for your reincarnation. <laughs> Take me advice, if you get to live twice. Have a change should you get the choice. Don't come back as human. No, for a peaceful existence, return just like me. <sighs> I've Seen It All Before was written and read by Andrew Ball. Well, thanks, Andrew. Unique as ever. We now move on to hear another extract collected by Adam for the Pushing the Boat Out exhibition. This time we hear from Sandra Quinn, one of a number of women that worked in the shipyards. You know, your, your parents ask you the question, what would you like to be? What would you like to do? 
And I knew categorically I wasn't going to be a hairdresser, I wasn't going to be a secretary, because I loved drawing. And so you had a word with the careers officer, and who then had a word with Mrs Hills, and uh, they needed an apprentice. So I had an interview uh, the week after I left school, and I started work on the Monday. So you were going to be apprenticed as, as a what? A tracer. So could you describe, um, for, for people who might not know what a tracer is, could you describe exactly what a tracer does? A tracer is um, a time served because it's not just something that you can uh, do quickly, shall we say. Um, the, the draftsmen in the different departments in Hawthorne Leslie would send plans into our office. Then the finished drawing was traced um, and tracing, it's not tracing paper, as people might imagine. It's actually a cloth. So you pinned it on top of the draftsman's drawing and then you traced whatever it is that he wanted traced underneath. And Mrs Hills, who was my boss, she was absolutely the most wonderful tracer. The, the intricate... If there were, um, especially electrical stuff, uh, consoles and um, machinery. Women have worked in many industries. Our next piece tells the story of another great Northeast regular event. The Showman's Wife. Tales of the Town Moor Fairground, known as the Hoppings, by Chris Jackson. The reporter sat in the opulent bar of an expensive hotel on the outskirts of Newcastle. Miss Brown, a young newly appointed reporter for the local rag, took in her surroundings and was extremely surprised that the wife of a showman had chosen this venue to meet. This better not be a joke on behalf of the editor, she hissed under her breath as she loaded up her laptop. The raindrops glistened like jewels on the tall, elegant windows. It had never stopped raining all week. She looked up from her laptop and saw a lady being escorted to the table by the sommelier. Miss Brown, here is your guest, Mrs Cooper. My usual, please, Robert, Mrs Cooper purred to the sommelier in an accent which still hinted of her northeast origins. Of course, Mrs Cooper, and Miss Brown for you? The reporter pushed her half-drunk, lukewarm bottle of water into her backpack. Uh, <clears throat> white wine, please. What would Madame prefer? Pinot? Chardonnay? Uh, just house, please. As the reporter mentally checked to see if she had brought her credit card. After all, she was the host. The sommelier sniffed <clears throat> and turned on his heel. Pleased to meet you, Miss Brown, the vision and cream sulk said as she slid into the brown leather chair, her elegant Gucci sandal peeping from underneath her slacks. Her silver-white hair pinned into a French pleat framed her slightly tanned face and her piercing blue eyes took in the reporter's slightly urban sense of dress. Thank you for meeting me, said Miss Brown. The sommelier returned. Your vodka martini, Mrs Cooper. And I have taken the liberty, Miss Brown, to pour you a Pinot Grigio 2021. 
It is good to see you again, Mrs Cooper. I hope your family are well. Yes, all good, Robert. Very busy. We've just returned home from Europe. I am truly blessed with four strapping sons and now grandchildren who do all the hard work on the shores. Now me and Ernest just sit comfortably in our living wagon with our memories. Now, Miss Brown, I take it you want to know about the life of a showman's wife and the life we lead? Coming from Walker here in Newcastle, I can tell you more about the hoppings held on the town moor, if you like. The showman's wife went on to regale tales of the hoppings. Did you know the word hoppings is derived from several variations? The reporter shook her head. It was first said that it was derived from the Anglo-Saxon word hoppin, meaning to dance, leap or hop as you would do at a fairground. I prefer what has been told by my husband's ancestors over the years, that in the olden days, the showmen or travellers, as they were called then, dressed in clothes made of sacking, which became infested with fleas from the animals they kept, which caused them to hop and leap as the fleas bit. <laughs> Therefore, the term hoppings was created. The reporter glanced at the attire this woman was wearing in front of her. Oh yes, very different now. We have moved on in our business, reaping the benefits of extremely hard work by the showmen, supported by their own guild. Travelling the country and over to Europe, building our own empire of solicitors, accountants, investments, accessing health care and education of our children. I remember as a child bride of Ernest, coming into the family as an outsider. At first, the women spoke their own language, Pagliari, in front of me as they didn't trust me. Soon as I minded the bingo tent for my mother-in-law, I proved my worth to them. I worked in all weathers seven days a week in the early days. I then started to design dresses for them so they could attend balls and dinner dances of the showman guilds. Now we go to designers across Europe to find our wardrobe. I love coming back here to Newcastle. Every year the Miners' Plate, or the Pitman's Derby as it was called, we celebrate on the Saturday after the race at the Gosforth Park Hotel. Now, <laughs> that's where you'll see real finery and diamonds as the wives show off their status to other families touring from the country and Europe. Mrs Cooper laid her head back, visualising all of the stories she'd been told about Len Johnson and Jay Stewart, boxing promoters, enticing young men to try their hand in the ring to knock out one of these giant boxers for prize money. Many famous names, such as the Chadwicks, Pattersons, Professor Testo with his flea market, all taking up positions on the side show row, which they took the same place every year as their fathers had done, barking the same thing every day, You'll remember it all your life. The lion-faced lady, the cherry cat, which was actually black. Well, you get black cherries, don't you? The gypsy wagons, cross me palm with silver deary. The most famous story is of Bostock and Wombell's menagerie. They only performed once on the town moor, but attended fairs in surrounding Newcastle. This famous menagerie opened for the last time at the Old Sheep Market, November the 24th, 1931. After the final performance, the show was disbanded and sold. The two elephants, Rosie and Dixie, set off down Northumberland Street 
to the store of Arthur G. Fenwick to perform their last farewells. Can you imagine elephants walking down Northumberland Street? The waltzers came next, spinning giggly girls around at such speed. Mrs Cooper opened her eyes and gently coughed. <clears throat> That's what the Coopers were famous for, the waltzers. Ernest won my heart and persuaded me off the waltzer into his arms to marry him. Running off with the gypsies, she heard her mum's voice screeching in her head. Different story when I bought them a modest Tyneside flat later in life. Mum and Dad never really understood the life we led. She looked out of the window into a different life. Now the fair has three stories ghost rides attached to wagons, skyscraping big wheels, and our living wagons are pure luxury compared to the living wagons pulled by horses. The rain beat harder against the windows. Do you know why it always rains here when the hoppings arrive the last week of June? The reporter shook her head. Well, in 1880, a gypsy called Doreen van Bergerwiel was thrown off the town where by the showman for causing trouble. She was so angry she used all her powers to curse the town where. Her curse was that every year the fairground returns to Newcastle, it will rain all week. <laughs> well, I can tell you that does happen. I hope you have enough information, Miss Brown, as I must take my leave. I prepare for the miners' plate tomorrow. She indicated to Robert, who instantly came to her side to escort her to a waiting car. On to better, she said to Robert and Polly Ari. Good to see you too, Mrs Cooper. She left the room in a vision of silk with sparkling diamond bangles that matched the raindrops on the windows in the late afternoon sun. Well, the reporter whispered, I never expected that. That piece was written and recorded by Chris Jackson. Now our final extract of the oral history from the museum is from Peter Jagle, talking about buses and ferries. We went up to what they call a terminus in Brockley Winds, which is next to where Bolden Colliery Station was, which is now Brockley Winds Metro. And when I walked around the corner, there was literally nine buses at this terminus, and it's not a big place. And every single one of them double-decker buses was full. And they were all guys who were working on the river or any or something to do, like railroads and stuff like that. Um, as, an, as an apprentice... Uh, we were obviously at Swan, so we had to get the bus up to Heaven, up to Palmer's, and the big square Palmer's, which I believe is still there, that used to be full of buses on the morning. Guys running for the ferry to get across to Swans. Some guys used to jump off the jetty to catch the ferry. A lot of people think, nah, but it's true. Loads of guys went in the water. So the ferry would be pulling off. And the guys and, and, and they've almost missed it, so they 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 jump for it. Run and jump to get on the ferry, so they weren't late clocking in. It was honestly, it was incredible. Get up, get up, lad! Get out of bed. The horns are blowing. They'll wake the dead. 
Down the dock they stand in lane, the ladies of the tain, the duchess, the princess, and your queen. Against the tide they'll get you there, work a half shift if you dare, and Michaelson, for God's sake, comb your hair. Cunningham stood proud on the queen in the moonlit night. As she steamed up the river, men appeared through the morning mist, tired, weary from their night shifts. Thoughts of resting sleepy heads on worn-out beds. Governments come, governments go, turn their backs on the working class. Laid off, paid off, no more work in these docks, cast away from work and pay on the dole again. Cunningham has one last run past empty yards where work begun. Take the Queen to a place of work, nor a river, nor a sea. Green hills and trees. The Caledonian Canal and the Jacobite Queen she'll be. Where are all the yards? Where are all the men? No more ships built on the Tain. No, never again. And the poem that followed Peter's piece was written and read by Michael Keane. It's inspired by the ferries that used to cross the Tyne carrying people to and from their places of work. I now want to remind you that the first Enchanted Cramlington Wildlife and Magical Creatures Trail event is on from May the 29th to the 5th of June at Northumberlandia. You can book the trail by going to Northumberland Wildlife Trust website www.nwt.org.uk and going to their events page. You will be able to use your mobile device to scan QR codes and hear the character stories along the trail at Northumberlandia. If you weren't able to make it for the Jubilee celebrations, do keep an eye on the Enchanted Cramlington Facebook page for further events throughout the year. I hope you've enjoyed listening to our stories. Please do let us know. The Hive Radio Storytellers Group meet every Wednesday, sometimes virtually, other times in person, especially when we have new projects developing. If you're interested in getting involved in writing, performing or producing audio drama and podcasts, do please get in touch. You can contact us by emailing us at hive underscore radio underscore storytellers at outlook.com or leave comments on our Facebook page. You just need to search for Hive Radio Storytellers. For this podcast, the incidental music is by Ben Hudson and the podcast is produced by Diane Gray.